Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's easily needled. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. In this episode, we are going to examine the growth of anti-vaccine misinformation. A recent report suggests that big tech companies aren't doing enough to counter false information about vaccines on their sites. Could this be anything to do with the fact that uh, apparently anti-vaccine information misinformation generated a billion pounds of profits for big social media companies? It's impossible to speculate, but we'll try after this. Center for Countering Digital Hate, and it discusses the different type of anti-vaxxer accounts that are out there, the kind of ecosystem that allows this kind of misinformation to take place, and also goes into that cold hard cash as we uh, alluded to in the introduction. Plus a few, a few things I found interesting. Something that struck me actually is the fact that Instagram sees the biggest growth area in terms of vaccine information. I found that particularly interesting because uh, I don't use Instagram, but my impression of the site was essentially it's a nice fluffy site, unlike Twitter, which is a cesspit. On Instagram, you post pictures of your cats or nice things you see out on a walk or maybe your brunch, you know, in those days where we could actually go out and eat brunch and post pictures in cafes i didn't think it was a hive of political disinformation well i think instagram's probably going to be quite interesting in in that regard in that it's in many ways the quintessential platform when you talk about like social media influencers people who are basically have large followings across social media platforms one of the 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 most engaging from the perspective of their fans actively keeping up with them is is instagram because it's a platform where social media influencers have a lot of reach and an ability to get in front of their audience quite easily. I can easily see why you end up in end up in a situation where it's become a bit more of a growth industry, as you say, for anti-vaxxers. Instagram in, in and of itself, I feel like it might lend itself to that spread of misinformation because actually it is a social media platform, as you say, based around the spread of pictures, graphics, memes, all of these things utilized quite heavily by the anti-vax movement overall. So for Instagram to see that increase doesn't necessarily surprise me, but it is interesting. The other potential thing that I think could be uh, could, could be worth speculating on on this is I wonder if maybe the average age of Instagram users might have just increased over time. And so more of the people who are more likely to be impacted or affected or believe in this sort of stuff have just moved onto the platform as part of the moving onto different sorts of technology and platforms as things go on. That, yeah, the age thing, I think, is a really interesting point. I think also you're right in the talk about it being about influencers. So there's a, a few people it, it mentions 
particularly, what it also says is that some of the most influential anti-vax non-profits are founded by just two people. But there's three specific people it mentions on Instagram, one of whom it says is an anti-vax filmmaker, Del Bigtree, who I assume is a real person, even though he sounds like he should be a spoof, a villain in a spoof Raymond Chandler novel. Um, <laughs> also a nation, of, a nation of Islam influencer, Riza Islam, and both of those have added 187,000 followers between them. But big on Instagram, would you believe it, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. of the Kennedys um, of presidential fame. He has added over 336,000 people to his following in months. And part of it, as you say, Steve, is through memes. So it's through sharing graphic memes. He was well known as an environmental campaigner before this, but over the last few months has got more and more involved in conspiracy theories about Bill Gates, 5G, which we had a podcast on a few months ago, and specifically anti-vax information as well. So he's kind of leveraged that information, uh, that that reputation into activism to promote anti-vax misinformation too. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you can effectively track back to a patient zeros in terms of the growth and spread of these uh, sorts of beliefs online on, on social media platforms like Instagram, because it, it it's very much a platform where the spread of images is, is, is what it's designed for. It's very easy to, to do. And when your entire, for lack of a better term, marketing strategy for your political ideology of, anti, of being an anti-vaxxer is based around imagery, it's an ideal platform for you. Also, you can't really rebut things on there, which is uh, another point that's probably quite interesting as to why it's probably grown more than other ones. Twitter, people can berate you. Facebook, people can respond to you. You can comment on Instagram, but very rarely are people having debates on in the topics, in the comments on there. So there, there isn't necessarily that culture of criticism or kind of like engagement for, for discussion on there, which means when people are putting stuff up there, either they're just scrolling through seeing the image and not actually clicking through to see the comments, or they're just not engaging with the comments if they are there at all. So it's That's it's nice. just easy to spread this information. I suppose my, my impression of Instagram as a website, as I said, this is very much a, a second-hand point of view, but there seem to be actually people go on to not engage in debate, you know, if because obviously all my friends are, are, are uh, I don't actually have any normal people who are friends anymore. Sorry, Steve, you're probably the nearest that I have. But the, but, the, but those political friends I have who are on Instagram. Instagram is their is their refuge from a very politicized social media environment of Twitter and Facebook. So often I think people were going away from Instagram to like it, the point of Instagram wasn't to to do politics or debating these kind of things, was it? In a way that actually Twitter was almost designed. To, to be about engaging and debating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, t- uh, Instagram over over its the, the course of its existence has created a culture, as you say, of sharing cute images of pets, sharing images of what you ate for lunch, all, all of those sorts of things, all of which leads you to just kind of consume it. You just consume the content on there almost brainlessly because you don't have to think about it. You don't have to engage with people. You scroll, you see. And when you're in that mindset, hey, maybe more when you do see more of those anti-vax images coming up, maybe you are more likely to just kind of look at it and go, you know what? 
I, I accept that. I think the interesting thing is, uh, and we'll probably end up saying lots of terrible things about Facebook. Sorry, Nick Clegg. Um, but one of the things that the report does say is that actually Facebook has done a relatively decent job and maybe better than Instagram has been doing at trying to clamp down on some of the misinformation. Certainly um, over the last few years, Facebook's trying to take specifically anti-vax information quite seriously um, after a, a, a spike in measles cases, which was generally because parents weren't giving their kids the MMR vaccine. But one of the things that the report does talk about Facebook being is a what it calls a, a funnel. I'm hoping uh, with your digital marketer Stetson on, Steve, you can help me explain what this is. So I'm going to quote directly from the report. Uh, and it says, the most influential anti-vax entrepreneurs use Facebook as the mouth of a marketing funnel that directs potential customers from social media content to newsletter sign-up pages and from there to free video content and finally paid content or products. Um what does that actually mean? Long story short, short it means you get people interested um, in what you're talking about on Facebook. When they're following you on Facebook, uh, they will click a link to go to a website, your website, say, um, and they will sign up for the newsletter or sign up to download something. That then gives you access to them for, through your email marketing. You then email them other pieces of content. They've mentioned video there because video is one of the most engaging forms of content that's available. Once you've got them through that, what you've effectively started to do is build a community of individuals who are to, to, to use the general kind of marketing speak here, individuals who are a part of your brand community and they are interested in you as a as an organization interested in your views if it's a person they are there for you uh, as a result of that they're much more easy to monetize than the general public are because you have a relationship with them and marketing at every stage of the journey is about trying to build that relationship between the user and the, the company or the brand or the individual that is trying to sell them something. Now, everything you've just described there is essentially really decent marketing. It's nothing overly special. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of thing we really ought to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, but I don't want to do it in my free time as well as at look. <laughs> <laughs> this, this stuff isn't necessarily particularly advanced marketing it's a standard marketing funnel where the idea is you have a you, you get as many people at the top of the funnel as you can and then at each stage of the journey you probably you don't convert everybody because you just you just can't do it but you just the ones that do convert you get fewer and fewer and fewer but as the as you get down the funnel you've got your people you can sell to they're all the people or your customers because they're the ones that are bought into what you're talking about. And then once they, and, and this is actually probably where the anti-vax stuff is, is quite interesting from a marketing perspective because these people who have then bought into this quite literally by paying money for things, then kind of move on to the next stage of, of, of marketing. And this is what every marketer dreams they can turn their, their customers into, which is zealots for the brand or advocates for the brand. What, what uh, anti-vaxxers have been very good at doing is taking those customers and turning them into, pe into uh, people who will go out and effectively you know, preach the message 
on their own time in their own things, which then reaches more people, which then brings more people up to the top of the funnel. And then it just becomes a self, uh, uh, you know, a, a self fulfilling prophecy every time it goes through. Self emptying funnel. Yeah, but also it fills itself up again. Really interesting point. I think there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things. One of them is it's definitely part of it is they have a product to flag. Uh, sorry, they have a product yeah. to flog for some of them. So it, there are some entrepreneurs on the anti-vax movement who are about selling wellness cures. And there's products they say, if you take this, you'll never get a cold or a fever or a flu ever, ever again. And as someone who has had to teach the history of medicine, admittedly only to a GCSE level, uh, but it was really interesting that the the parallels between that and quack cures that were being sold in 19th century London is completely fascinating and um, tragically hilarious. But the other thing that the, the um, self-replenishing funnel does is it's also about selling misinformation. So on these newsletters, what they are saying is it it's about... It allows these entrepreneurs to make claims about their products in the privacy of a newsletter that's sent by email that they might not necessarily want to make public. So in one case, um, it talks about uh, a couple of influential anti-vax entrepreneurs who, again, one of, one, of whom, one of whom is called Ty Bollinger. So again, sounds like if you were writing a spoof Raymond Chandler novel, there'd definitely be Ty Bollinger in there somewhere. Um, he'd probably be the boyfriend of the society lady who's gone missing, um, who actually has something to do with her disappearance towards the end of the novel. And uh, apparently he says that they invite potential customers to exit the public domain and purchase access to a private website in order to view their products because... I'm going to do my Ty Bollinger. Should I do a Ty Bollinger voice? Don't do a Ty Bollinger voice. There are certain things that you cannot, for the Patreons, we'll do the Ty Bollinger voice. There are certain things that you cannot say if if you are in the health world today. Often these kind of conspiracy theories, because that's the thing that anti-vaxxers are often linked to. Often it's linked, and so people, we've talked about Robert F. Kennedy earlier. One of the other people mentioned the report is David Icke, and it's linked to often anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, linked to big Bill Gates, New World Order, that kind of stuff. And one of the reasons why they're flourishing now is that these conspiracy theories flourish in a world where people aren't sure what's true. There's a kind of, uh, I think they talk about this epistemic uncertainty. And this is not just true in this current pandemic. So I've talked about the 19th century quack cures, and that's a time where tens of thousands of people are dying from now what we consider very preventable diseases um, or diseases like cholera, for instance, or even go back to the Black Death. Back then, uh, there were indeed, again, a rise in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. There was There were attacks on Jews in medieval Europe because there were people thought that the reason why the Black Death was happening is because the Jews have been poisoning wells. This is in no way a a new phenomenon, but I think what's interesting is the ecosystem on social media that allows it to grow to such a massive extent. And so one of the ways it allows the movement to grow uh, and this ecosystem that we've talked about is in Facebook groups. A nice stat for you to talk about at your Christmas Zoom parties, listeners. Facebook claims that one billion people are active in a group every day, which is most of its 
daily active users, which is 1.73 billion, which is an insane number, but we'll park that for a second. And uh, this report from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, it looks at 64 groups. There's about a million people in those groups and they've grown by 89,000 since COVID. A bit like those newsletters, actually, that kind of self-replenishing funnel that you talked about earlier, they allow this misinformation to be shared with large audiences with no real opportunity for scrutiny or challenge or insight. And what it also then happens is it's really easy to radicalise people in those groups. Um, so, for instance, like group members are encouraged to share photos of their children with an explanation of why they've not been vaccinated. And what happens then is they are like, they're shared across timelines. And often because they're, they, they're massive emotional stories, you get a bit of a, a hit from getting a like. And the, the thing about these Facebook groups is, as I said, it's really hard to challenge information in there. There's a real incentive not to challenge and argue with some of the information in those Facebook groups. Something else that's particularly interesting, there's, it, it becomes a bit of an us and them. So there are a few people in those Facebook groups that talk about how their family and friends have got a bit disturbed by the amount of time they're spending on these anti-vax Facebook groups as well. This is, the, to, to my mind, one of the core things with the anti-vax movement is that when you actually cut down to it, an awful lot of what, what it boils down to is built the building of a of a cult like when you when when you look into how cults operate one of the the core kind of steps is pulling individuals away from their their friends and their family uh to um to identify solely with the members of the cult and that's something that is you can see happening when it comes to the anti-vax uh movement online you have individuals who, because when effectively when they get challenged, um, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter, or, or wherever, react very, very negatively, negatively, very, very poorly, which drives wedges between friends and or former friends and family members to the extent where you know you can you can see over time that be being a root cause of an awful lot of infighting within the within the family which drives that anti-vaxxer member out of that the the family out of those friendship groups because they 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 just don't know they just don't know man they just don't understand the truth whilst they're constantly being reinforced in these communities online where as you say most people on facebook are on these are on groups every day and if they're a part of these groups which they probably will be they're getting that message reinforced through them time and time and time again which in turn means that it, they're not going to break out of it so you are left with this very dangerous situation where whether by intent or by accident the anti-vax movement, through its use of uh, marketing and through the use of these groups and communities, has managed to create what I would class as a cult, where it's literally damaging not just the, the members of the cult, but the wider society as well. And it is a fascinating but also terrifying phenomenon. The cult aspect combined with the ability to produce marketable merchandise is definitely part of it as well so there is um the largest group called stop mandatory vaccination which has 196,000 members 35,000 more since a year ago 
its administrator, Larry Cook, regularly asks for money from group members, shares links to his website, where you can fundraise thousands of dollars for top secret projects, directs group members to buy his books and DVDs. Imagine how sad you've got to be to try and every week put out something online and ask people for money. Just must be. I know, it's just the absolute worst. But I mean, I, I do think that that is a, a good point you kind of raise there, though, in that it is quite likely that an awful lot of the people who are these influencers online and who are selling these products don't believe a damn word they're saying. And it's just a grift to them. It's just, Hey, there's a group of people we can exploit for for cash. Yeah. And the, the report talks about that in a, in a bit actually about that in a bit of detail about that ecosystem, about some are entrepreneurs, some are more sort of evangelists. You see the same misinformation day after day after day, at which point you eventually believe it. Basically fringe group views get normalized in these groups. So that maybe gargling salt water cure, you know, prevents you from ever getting measles or suggesting that Bill Gates is going to use vaccines to control the Earth's population. Like these, these views are posted in there. It's not challenged because it's not seen as right or the done thing to challenge groups. The other thing is the Facebook algorithm aspect of it as well. And this is one of the things that seems to be behind the growth of a lot of the QAnon stuff as well is because these these interactions in groups were ranked higher on the Facebook algorithm rather than posts on news feeds. So they are seen as more meaningful interactions, which means Facebook tends to promote them more as well. Facebook's algorithm changes are interestingly going to have some global impacts, which no one could have could have seen facebook but essentially if, if you show people group related content they're more likely to get involved with it and therefore stay on the app or stay on the website and therefore spend more time there which means you can see more ads and you know they can which might get engaged with which means companies are encouraged to spend more money and therefore facebook makes more money in and of itself facebook's desire to maximize its revenue which is what any business is is meant to do isn't necessarily a, a bad thing, but because of the nature of their business as a social media platform and because of the the nature of a lot of these fringe groups where they are high levels of engagement, they you end up feeding them to people. You, you end up feeding these groups more, more and more people over time. And Facebook so far does not seem to have an answer for really what you can do about it. There's a really interesting New York Times article that was posted, that was written only in the week. That was really interesting because that talked about, they found an algorithm that they worked out if they could um, take bad for the world stories that to be demoted in the user's feed so they wouldn't see it as often. And actually what they found is that does work, but then people were using Facebook for less often <laughs> so there was this need not to use it and also that facebook employees managed to develop some tools to combat misinformation and hate bait but they ran into opposition from policy executives who feared that it would disproportionately impact conservatives you have the worst bit of the bbc's kind of both sidesism if i can paraphrase all that plus the hungry profit motive of a evil global capitalist company if I can put it like that. So you've kind of got a double whammy of horribleness in that algorithm there. Let's just be quite honest here and say this isn't just Facebook. Uh, YouTube, uh, obviously owned by Google, faces a very similar issue in a number of ways for when it comes to anti-vax content um, existing on, on the platform. There's just so much stuff going on that it's basically impossible 
for the social media platforms and technology companies to actually keep up with it because they've just created a monster and they can't control it. Speaking of monsters we can't control, Donald Trump. Um, (laughs) Now, this is an interesting bit, I think, in the report about the particular role of the almost erstwhile president. So there's an influential minority of anti-vaxxers that support Trump. It's not all one-way traffic, though. One fact, I I don't know if I ever knew this or if I just wiped it from my memory or that 2016 is just so long ago that so much news has flowed under the information bridge since then. But in 2016, before Trump got elected, Trump actually met with Andrew Wakefield, who was the chap who was promoting the MMR vaccine misinformation nonsense. But you've also got Trump's intellectual flexibility uh, and the fact that he doesn't really believe in anything necessarily. So you've got him meeting with Andrew Wakefield one day, but then later on, you have Trump last year trying to publicly back vaccines when um, you've got measles outbreaks in the US, which are the result of poor vaccine rollouts in the US. And obviously, Trump has been hoping for a COVID vaccine to make the virus go away in America as well. Yeah, and I, and I think there probably is, I suspect, as you kind of dig into these things more and more, um, going to be a massive overlap between the far right ecosystem and the anti-vax movement. As you've already said, there's an awful lot of anti-Semitic stuff when you get into the deeper echelons of uh, of how it all wrought, of, of, of the messaging and the memes that, that emerge. Um, something that the anti-vax movement has that Donald Trump doesn't have is massive profitability. So the 58 million strong global vaccine, anti-vax movement could be worth, according to the report, uh, over a billion dollars a year in revenue for social media giants. There's two ways that is calculated. Just to take Facebook and Instagram as an example. So it's partly people wanting to know who anti-vaxxers are so they can be served targeted adverts. That's part of it. The other way is they actually get revenue from adverts placed directly from anti-vaxxers. The report has looked at Facebook's ad library, found that 28 anti-vax accounts have placed ads on Facebook, including our old friend Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from the Children's Health Defence Campaign. Uh, And they promote health information about vaccines and also about 5G mobile phone signals. And the interesting thing is, we we mentioned, touched on the the, the measles aspect of this before, Facebook's policy from March last year was that if they found ads that included misinformation about vaccines, they will reject them. Well, they're not doing it in this case. There is a dirty little secret amongst big tech the social media platforms, Google, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all of these different, whilst they talk a big game about wanting to regulate, manage, moderate these sorts of things, the reality is they have built platforms that are too big to manage manually without great expense, which means they lean in on algorithms, AI, to, to try and do the work for them. And don't get me wrong, the you know these things are are making progress and they are going to be very good and helpful in the future for helping moderate these sorts of, the sorts of things online, whether it be anti-vax, alt-right, you know they they will be very very useful when we get there. But we're not there yet, and big tech's reliance on these algorithms and they always talk about them whenever they kind of get pulled up in front of like 
committees or hearings. And the problem is in the interim, they don't have anything that's actually going to function uh, as, as active moderation for these sorts of these sorts of content and advertising because they just don't invest enough manpower to actually go through it and from the business perspective unless they are regulated to do so they're not going to and to be honest one of the best ways you can probably do that is just by making them liable for the content that's on there they are they are publishing platforms at this point uh, as much as they might protest against it so Let's make sure we're actually treating them like it and making them uh, liable uh, liable for the the things that get published on there. That if they don't want to put in moderation to to allow it, or well, that's on that's on them, and they should feel the financial negatives that can come from that. In terms of manual moderation, it's not just the financial cost, is it? It's also the effect on the moderators because there have been a couple of really interesting articles that have interviewed moderators who have to um, who have to decide what content should be banned from Facebook or not. And often it could be particularly horrific images, in which case there's a, a little bit of PTSD that seems to, to creep in when they're continually seeing these awful things. But there's also a bit like we said about these Facebook groups where you start seeing things normalised. There was a really horribly scary quote from one of them that says, actually, I think with the amount of Holocaust denials content that was being posted that he had to review and he said to the interview well I started to think well maybe there is something in it and maybe there are parts of it that are exaggerated and then you end up going down a horrible rabbit hole I think the other thing is so much of this goes against what was seen as almost the founding myth of the internet as well that it was seen as a bit of a, a free spirit uh, beholden to no government government which is a, a bit of a myth but still I think pervades among some of the more idealistic types I mean maybe uh, certainly among Facebook because they don't really believe in government regulation because they want more profits as well I think the other thing is it's a little bit like the 2008 crash isn't it the banking crisis we were told in the run-up to that that you don't need to worry about these complicated things like collateralized debt obligations things like that because they are so complex it's not worth understanding them and i think there's something going on like something similar happening isn't there with face with these tech company algorithms is yes it's very complicated you don't need to understand it it doesn't really impact your day-to-day -day life whereas actually it really really does yeah it may not impact your day-to-day -day in a notice noticeable manner but we are seeing with reports like this and what the more and more we look at the impacts of social media that it does impact on us severely in many many ways so much of this basically boils down to the fact that the social media platforms aren't regulated to actually have to take action in these regards. And until they are, they're not going to do a damn thing. And the massive real world implication this might have is on vaccination and whether or not it works in the future. So those scientists we have now um, estimate apparently 82% of the population would need to become immune to COVID either through the disease or through a vaccine so that we could safely manage outbreaks in the future. Now, given that we have a growing anti-vax misinformation program, 
And this is why I think it's different, you know, it's different from the Black Death, it's different from the 19th century, just because of this ecosystem that's out there. And even the Spanish flu, actually, the, the fact that we call it the Spanish flu is also a, a product, actually, of 20th century early disinformation and nonsense. Um, but because that ecosystem is in place, either almost negligently brought upon by some of our the world's most profitable massive companies you've got an increase in, in terms of pulse of people who are looking like they'll be uncomfortable taking a vaccine who are worried about the efficacy of it whether it would work there's some YouGov polling which suggests that vaccine refusal and use of social media are linked so if you consume traditional news media you're still more likely to take a vaccine if it's only through social media you get your news you're much less likely to and so although uh, this report feels like it could it's just about a small corner of the internet that doesn't really matter it could have some massive implications as we move into 2021 we are also grifters in our own special way a classy type of grifter more like a kind of high-end busker if you will and so if you imagine us standing on the street with a cap on the ground regaling our passers-by with news and opinion now obviously we can't do that at the moment because it's very hard to do a podcast in that format but what we are saying instead is rather than put our cap on the ground we have a patreon page steve can you save this segment uh no i don't think i can but i can tell the listeners about our patreon page uh they can go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where you can throw us a couple of quid every month uh to uh, support the podcast uh, everything that we get from the podcast uh, from the patreon goes on to uh the costs for for running the podcast overall so as long as we are Kind of like making uh, some money off of this, we can continue to do this indefinitely. As a, as a member of our regulars uh, and champagners on Patreon, you'll gain access to uh, unique episodes made only available um, to our backers there. Um, when we are able to produce some uh, some some blog content and things like that, you're getting early access to it, uh, as well as unique access to uh, other forms of content like that as well. So head over throw us a few pounds and uh, we hope to see you there our website is notenoughchampagne.com our facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne our twitter handles at no champagne pod james i I forgot i did you forgot what twitter was didn't you (laughs) yeah (laughs) to be fair i think everyone wishes they could forget what twitter was James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plicky Good Times. I'm on Twitter at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.